Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome to Conversations with the Voice of Reason. I'm your host, Benjamin Boyce, and today's guest is Inez Stepman, who is an author and an orator and a senior policy analyst for Independent Women's Forum. In this conversation, we talk about conservatism, or conservatism, pardon me, and Inez's stance on the liberal post-60s conception of what it is to be a woman, and how that conception, that popular conception of womanhood, is not necessarily leading to happiness, and what alternatives are there. So, without further ado, this is a great conversation. Strap on in and allow me to introduce you to Inez Stepman. Do you mind if we uh, start rolling? Okay. Uh, Inez, I've been, I don't think stalking is the correct term. I don't know the right word for what you do when you just listen to somebody on Clubhouse and you don't speak back. Um, But I guess we'll come up with that word soon enough. Uh, But I've been listening to you all weekend just by chance, I think, because the way that Clubhouse, which is a new app, which is uh, basically chat rooms for people with voices and ears, and uh, it's been pretty enlightening. It's a really, I enjoy it as a way to research uh, my guests and also to engage with ideas that aren't necessarily directly apparent to me, uh, such as uh, conservatism, which is one thing, because I grew up in a quite liberal area pardon me, the West Coast, and uh, I've been venturing into trying to figure out what that other side is all about um, beyond just the surface. But how has your experience been of this uh, wildly controversial app? <laughs> Unfettered conversation. It's almost a cliche at this point. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I really liked it. Uh, I think it reminds me of Twitter early on where you can really get and you can engage people that you might not think you could engage and get an actual response from them and actually participate in in the conversation in a way that I think now at this point, just not even because of the censorship um, on Twitter, although that too, but also just by the sheer volume on Twitter. This is this is a kind of ground floor thing. Um, it'll mm-hmm. be interesting to see how it develops. But actually, I have a very similar background to you. I mean, I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area, so uh, not unfamiliar with being in, in, in deep lib territory, as it were. Um, <laughs> But uh, my family came from uh, communist Poland, so I always had a little bit of a different view at home, at least towards some of the the 30,000-foot concepts, although my parents largely let me feel my way out into the political world on my own. It didn't dictate to me what I should believe. But I I would be lying if I said that that didn't influence where I ended up on on the political spectrum, just uh, their experiences in Poland and and, um, under communism, so... Definitely. What is basically your trajectory then politically uh, growing up in San Francisco where I guess you absorbed those ideas? Did you adhere to those uh, that mindset or were you always kind of slightly resistant? I mean, I think slightly resistant is a fair term. Um, I was never a 100 percent liberal, but I was definitely more liberal than I am now. I think a lot of us when we're 16, 17, 18, we have a grab bag of ideas. Like I considered myself on the left, but I also hero worshiped Ronald Reagan because in my house, Ronald Reagan was the guy who brought down the Soviet Union. Um, So just, you know, a sort of a weird grab bag of of views, Um, you know, went to some Iraq war protests then changed my mind about the war, went back and forth. Like, um, so I don't think I had a particularly coherent political philosophy. I was more libertarian in college, um, as a lot of folks, again, I think are, uh, and then moved right substantially and primarily even on social issues um, or cultural issues in the last I don't know, five, seven, eight years. Um, I'm 33 okay. now. So yeah, since probably like 24, 25 started to move right on, on cultural issues. And um, actually, interestingly enough, those became the issues that I thought ended up being the most important or, or what I think are the most important, um, which is not something I think my uh, college self would have 
agreed with at all. I was just definitely more focused on fiscal and economic issues then. Okay, economic issues. And um, what were some of the significant uh, milestones for you uh, changing your view on cultural issues? Or what, what, what were some of the cultural issues and what event or you know, chain of uh, thought in your life caused you to uh, kind of stake your position on a conservative end? I don't know that there's a single event, um, but I did see, particularly maybe the subject of this video generally, um, on feminism. I think I saw a lot of space between what I observed is in, in reality and among my friends and myself and how relations between men and women worked um, and the ideology that was being pumped into the culture. And I, I think I saw a lot of um, pain coming out of that. Um, to some extent my own, but I think other other people's as well, you know, my friends. Um, and I think that actually was the precipitating issue of moving right for me. For me, it wasn't, you know, uh, gay marriage or abortion or uh, any of the traditional, I guess, 90s and 2000s social issues, but to see how little resemblance uh, the, the current gender ideology, and this is even before we talked about, you know, primarily trans issues and all that stuff, but how the underlying gender ideology about what it is to be a man, what it is to be a woman, how uh, we should interact with each other uh, as men and women. I, I, I saw like a lot of space between the promises of feminism and, and the reality of what I saw around me. And I think that actually did precipitate for me a, a move to, to the, the reactionary, right? I'm not actually a reactionary, I don't think, but um, certainly <laughs> described that way by others uh, to the extent that I, I do not call myself any kind of feminist, which I am, have come to understand is somehow controversial, even though uh, oh. only about a third of American women call themselves feminists. So I'm not really sure how being in the two thirds is particularly controversial, but um, somehow online it is that part of my bio and Twitter always gets pushed back and people calling me an idiot and whatever else. Yeah, I think public figures are uh, held to a particular standard because of the way that the narrative currents work. I don't know that I consider myself a public figure. I'm just a loudmouth <laughs> on Twitter. Um, and, and now Publicly. House. Yeah. <laughs> I guess and you have so. a figure, so there we go. <laughs> just don't call me an influencer. Um, oh, okay. Anyway, <laughs> well, I didn't. I didn't call you a public intellectual, which yeah. Well, I'm. I'm a unless you aspire to that, I, I'm totally willing to call you that. Yeah, no, 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 I'm a private intellectual. That's okay. What I'm <laughs> <laughs> a public loudmouth, private intellectual. Uh, there's got to be like a, a streets sheets uh, uh, tweet in there. But um, so it sounds like what you're uh, describing as feminism is like the liberal feminism. Uh, is that? Uh, do you adhere to that? Because I've been researching a lot of feminists and. To, uh, I was surprised because I didn't know anything. Surprised that there's all these different currents. Like there's uh, this thing called gender critical feminism, and there's this liberal feminism, and then there's all these waves and stuff. Uh, it sounds like you were reacting to the promise of a, a liberal feminism, some sort of utopia of, I guess, self uh, actualization, empowerment. Is that fair? Yeah, um, I actually critique, I think, um, all waves of the feminist movement, although there are elements of, of each, you know, sort of policy that I, I don't disagree with. Um, but yeah, for sure, the kind of um, self-actualization that came out of the 1970s, that came out of, I think, a broader the sexual revolution and the promises of the sexual revolution. Uh, I think those promises have really not panned out in particular for women because they don't um, comport well with our biological nature, they don't comport well with therefore our psychological nature. Um, but I, I actually, I think I critique all the waves of feminism because in my research, which is not super, super extensive, it's not like I've written a thesis on this or anything, but, um, you know, have, have went back, did the same thing you did, you know, re read uh, Simone de Beauvoir, went back to read Betty Friedan, and then um, further back into uh, early American feminists. So, um, and, and found the same thread running through all the different waves, despite them having strong disagreements, sex positive, sex negative, um, and then, you know, different visions of, of where biological sex, what role biological sex should play. Un underlying that, I think um, the definition I always use is the economic, social, and uh, cultural equality or whatever it is. It's one of those um, common definitions. It's the one that's in Merriam-Webster. Um, mm -hmm. So the, the economic, cultural, and social equality between the sexes, or it, sometimes it's also economic, political, and social equality between the sexes. 
that's the one that Beyonce uses, right, um, in her music. Uh, so it has both the Merriam-Webster imprimatur and the Beyonce pop culture imprimatur. And I like that definition because I think maybe 85 to 90 percent of the American public probably buys into it at some level. Um, and then we disagree over what it means. I might mm -hmm. find myself in the 10% because I don't know that if your biological sex is irrelevant to your economic situation and your career, to your political views, um, to how you operate both in the private and the public political spheres, um, your relationships, your society and how you interact with other people. It seems to me a pretty um, reasonable inference to draw that biological sex doesn't matter at all, right? Mm. If it doesn't matter for any of these really critical things about who we are, our identity, how we relate to other people, uh, then it seems to me that it's, it's the devaluing of biological sex would inevitably end up with the actual devaluing of, of more basic biological differences like upper body strength and, you know, genitalia, yeah. okay. which are the most superficial outcome other biological differences, but, um, you know, if you read the work by Dr. Deborah So, I know you had on, um, and uh, some Mona Charon has a book called Sex Matters. Both of them end up embracing a certain type of feminism. Nevertheless, they're laying out how biological sex actually matters and done fantastic work in doing that. Mm -hmm. But they, they don't just stop, right? It doesn't just stop. Our differences aren't skin deep. They're not superficial. They're obviously visible on a track team. But I would argue they also, you know, we are evolutionarily differently shaped um, in ways that are psychological or neurobiological or that inform what we might find fulfilling in life. And I, that's why I've moved away from feminism, I think, as a whole, because I, I find that that single thread that running even back into the um, 1700s in America, the idea that sex should not matter to our lives, and here I'm talking about biological sex, not sexual relations, um, that mm -hmm. biological sex ought not to matter in how we shape our lives. I don't find that realistic, and I don't find it conducive ultimately to understanding ourselves as women and men and understanding how we might better harmoniously get along um, because as, as um, Simone de Beauvoir lamented, uh, the, the, one of the things that separates the war between the sexes from, let's say, other categories of oppressed groups and, and oppressor groups is that there's too much fraternizing with the enemy. Um, so there's no, there's no possibility for complete separation between men and women, which she actually lamented because she said it prevents uh, the real women's liberation movement from you know, springing forth because we can't actually separate ourselves from men. So we are tied to our oppressors. Um, but I, I see that since we are tied to each other, um, I think it behooves us and our culture to have a deeper understanding of how sex does shape our lives um, and okay. how it shapes us as people and our relationships with others. There's certain levels of um, discernment or discrimination based on sex that are not desirable. Uh, there's certain systems that we want to be blind to sex, such as if somebody kills somebody else, it doesn't matter if the murderer is a male or a female. There should be a punishment for that, and it should probably be equal, I guess. I don't know. Uh, to Where do we um, – striving for equality uh, is necessary on certain uh, levels. Like you don't want to have uh, two people, a male and a female, starting at a job, just a rudimentary McDonald's job, and the male gets more than the female, uh, right? So at some sort of equality of opportunity or equality before the law is necessary, um, but it seems like where does that end? Where does the inequality or the difference begin? And I think that a lot of problems that we have in our society is not really understanding where equality works and where it's a total pipe dream. Uh, so um, so I, I do believe in equality under law. I think it can be justified through enlightenment principles without an explicit feminist um, sort of lens to it. Uh, but I do believe in equality under the law. But I think actually the way we talk about these kinds of differences always puts us on the defensive. It's always putting us on the back foot, right? So hmm. um, the left, the liberal left, or or even let's say that the post-liberal left will say, look at these differences in average pay between men and women, right? Um, therefore, there must be discrimination. And and the argument you kind of alluded to, and I think a lot of people make and make well, right? Christina Hoff Summers has made this argument. Uh, really, really well and effectively, but it's already on the defensive, right? We say, well, if you account for 
the different majors that men and women choose, if you account for hours worked, if you account for years in the workforce, if you account for um, even uh, hours worked within full time, right? Men tend to work more hours even when what's classified as full time than women do, right? If you account for aggressive negotiation for um, higher salaries and better benefits, right? If you do all these things, then yes, we can like theoretically equalize these numbers and, and say that we do actually pay for equal work, we pay equally. Um, I would flip that around and say, why is that a bad thing? Why why is it a bad thing that women make choices differently than men? In fact, we should expect, because women are deeply different than men, and those differences are more than superficial, we should expect major differences when we're looking at statistical averages. Now, I want to be clear, I'm not, I, I, I don't believe that there should be as like, legal barriers to females advancing in certain professions, right? Although I think there are a few exceptions to that. For example, combat in the military, um, there are some, some situations in which I think women are ill-suited um, to, and even those who succeed really well may have, um, like breaking up an all-male force may have social consequences within a unit that um, even if, if, if there is a rare woman who is able to take the physical rigors of combat, uh, that it may not be worth it for military readiness, but that's that's the exception, right? I, I don't I don't think generally there should be um, a law that prevents, for example, women from going to law school, which is something that was addressed by the Supreme Court several decades ago. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I do think that we're always on the back foot when we we are defensive about these gaps and differences. They will always exist. Um, across averages, even if there are individual exceptions to them. And to me, as a conservative, I see it as my role in the public discourse to point out that these these gaps are actually beautiful and good. Um, mm. They're not something that we should be defensive about or, or have to explain away, although um, I think there's value in explaining it once we're already you know, having this conversation. But I think, as a conservative, my role is to say, these are fine. In fact, we should expect these. And if, if we were to see those gaps narrow, I would I would very much worry that there were too many women, um, more than they are already, pushing themselves to succeed exactly like men, instead of thinking more deeply about what it might look like for a woman to succeed versus a man. And I'm not talking about something totally surface level, like, oh, it, you know, a woman succeeds when she gets married at 22 and has six kids. Like, that's, okay. I think that's too didactic and, and too, I don't want to become a caricature, mm-hmm. but... For example, we should expect women to even pursue careers that are more interpersonal because we have a ton of neurobiological research and social science research that shows that women are more satisfied um, by interpersonal relationships and men are more satisfied by building things. So this is sort of what James Damore alluded to, right? There are more men who are willing to sit in a cubicle for 12 hours a day, not interacting with other people, coding. That is fine. That's how men built a lot of civilization. Um, but it is on average less fulfilling. It makes women less happy. That's not to say there aren't great female coders who love their jobs, but we should expect that difference because of how we're different. We should expect women generally to get more fulfillment out of interpersonal relationships. And we shouldn't shame women who, who do get more fulfillment in a more traditional feminine way, um, which I think is currently what we're doing. And I think that's a lot of that's producing a lot of um, burned out women from leaning in and from forcing themselves basically uh, to behave as men, both in the professional and the personal arena. And I just think it doesn't work for the majority of women because we are, on average, we are very different from men. There, there. What I'm perceiving well, is a um, interpretation problem. The uh, you alluded to before that every gap is being translated or interpreted as oppression. Uh, So there's this basic assumption that there's um, kind of some sort of class warfare between the sexes or warfare between the sexes and the women get the short end of the stick. you have to replace that with something else if you want to get people to, uh, you know, collectively understand why those gaps are, as you say, beautiful. So what comes in and replaces that oppression narrative? Uh, what ideal or value set or story uh, comes in and uh, recasts those gaps in into something that's more holistic or, uh, you know, amenable to a good society rather than evidence of uh, a bad society doing bad things? Thanks. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that in fact, those gaps are evidence that we're different. And I think the good society would instead of fighting those tooth and nail, 
would encourage and culturally encourage um, young women to, uh, I hate using this phrase from the left, but to, to be more true to themselves and not to try to uh, imitate men in every facet of life. And and we have a real systematic, this is the only thing, I don't call it feminist, but I, I do um, you know, think that we devalue the feminine in our society. We devalue, and I think there's a really interesting um, sort of pop culture thing that made me think about this, but uh, when Lana Del Rey a few months ago came out and said, you know, why are you criticizing me for writing these songs about basically in love with men who are cruel to me, right? Hmm. Um, so she got criticized heavily. She, people said that her, her songs glorify abuse, right? Wait, well, and she didn't like being treated cruelly from the public, but she wants to be treated cruelly in private. Is that kind of like the yeah. irony there? <laughs> she was getting a lot of blowback. Her songs were getting cold, like glorification of abuse. Um, yeah. And she came out with, I think, an Instagram post or something and said, why is it that my songs are called glorification of abuse um, when I sing about, um, and here I'm, I'm transforming her words into my own, um, when I sing about this kind of very feminine road to ruin, right, which is not unfamiliar, mm -hmm. which, um, you know, runs through, you know, Billie Holiday and runs through, um, you know, all kinds of, of female art going back, the idea of being in love with a, a destructive man yeah. um, is, is a very female experience. It's not a good experience, but it is a very female and feminine experience. Um, and and she juxtaposed her work with the work, say, of Beyonce or Ariana Grande, who sing about, I would to not mince words, the way that she did. Um, they sing about having sex like men, right? So mm -hmm. she was basically saying, why is it that this is okay, um, you know, that they can sing about having sex in, in this um, and being sexually promiscuous in the same way that men can, but I can't sing about this female experience. I think there is something underlying that, which is the devaluing of the feminine. And that's, that's, those are both what I would call negative experiences, but one is cast through a very masculine lens and that's celebrated hmm. by our society. Women, you know, celebrating, um, you know, some element of their lives that is traditionally masculine is celebrated by our society. Meanwhile, Lana Del Rey is singing about a female road to ruin that is, um, it, I think if you were to poll women or, or do a survey, um, if you ask them the questions about, uh, do you feel empowered by, um, you know, casual sex with a lot of different men versus have you ever dated a guy you knew was wrong for you and was cruel to you, but you loved him anyway and couldn't seem to get out of that loop? I would, I would guess that the second experience is much more common among women um, than the first experience, and yet that's what's taboo to talk about in our society. That's just one small pop culture example, but I, I think the systematic devaluing of, of the feminine um, and sort of feminine uh, power and intuition and um, hmm. you know, a lot of, of uh, sort of what has been traditionally celebrated about women and, and honored about women um, has come with a real cost for a lot of women um, who more embody a feminine, uh, traditional sort of feminine uh, personality. I think we've made it a really harsh world for like 80% of women in pursuit of essentially <clears throat> trying to make entry into a man's world for a small percentage of women who really want and desire that life. Um, and I, I don't, I wouldn't call that feminism or I wouldn't call it I guess I would call it feminism, but I wouldn't call it advancement for women. What could you outline what it would be to uh, honor the feminine? What are what are some of those attributes of the feminine uh, that we can honor? And then how do we honor those things correctly? So I think um, to get a little bit personal, uh, you know, uh, I tend Don't to worry, be the, the personal is political here. So, <laughs> yeah, no, Um you know, I tend to be much more on uh, the the more rationalistic and um, kind of abstract part of the scale, which is unusual for women um, and, and tends to be more of a masculine trait. But I'm like really appalling at certain things that I very much value and um, think are, are worthwhile the, the about women and femininity, right? And I, I try to work okay. on myself in that regard. Um, but hmm. I, I, I think uh, our society has really catered itself to a handful of women um, who do enjoy this sort of rough and tumble um, competition, like cutthroat competitive world. They're not as um, cooperative. Um, but a lot of women are, for example, conflict averse, right? Um, mm -hmm. It's really hard 
to <laughs> to like rise to the top of a law firm if you're conflict averse, right? There are a lot more conflict averse women personality wise than men, and we and I think in, in the way we talk about uh, those traits, we devalue them because we need conflict averse people. We need people who resolve conflict between other individuals okay. and are yeah. kind of smooth out and make good feelings among people and and um, are and feel good not in the midst of conflict but in the midst of of seeming together our families. Right. This is a really really important personality trait for the world to go around. And yet, mm-hmm. I can't think of a single Hollywood movie that's come out recently that celebrates that attribute of a woman. Um, it's always like a girl boss or a, you know, somebody who <laughs> completely improbably can beat up men, right? Like we only celebrate aggressiveness in women. We don't celebrate, um, you know, that kind of, of feminine um, aversion to conflict and, and trying to like hold together groups of people and, and mediate between different yeah. factions in a family. I don't know about you, but like my mom is really good at that. Um, and, and without that, my family would be just me and my dad yelling at each other all the time. (laughs) So, um, I, I just, that's one example. And I guess I haven't thought through a whole list of these traits. Um, but I, I know it when I see it, when I, I see old Hollywood movies, for example, um, of women exercising feminine power, I recognize it and I see that we don't value that today. I, I have to do a little bit of a pushback. I worked in uh, several preschools over the course of about a decade and a half, and one preschool I was in for quite a while. And as you might suppose, I was the only male adult there. And so I was immersed in female behavior, uh, adult female behavior. And while they are conflict adverse, they're not. It's just all the conflict goes under the surface, and they can last on years with this very quiet war that's going on. I, and I, I would watch that occurring so it's a it's like a shadow conflict there's there's that aspect that i see that uh, females can be pretty good at where the 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 conflicts there it just it's under the surface much more uh, tactful or no yeah absolutely i think there are positive and negative aspects of these female traits right so like the same way when we talk about masculinity you know aggression is a positive thing when you're defending your family um, mm-hmm. It can be a negative thing if it's not channeled, you know, well, and you, um, in, in, for example, it's channeled into gang activity or crime, right? That's also an element of male mas- of masculinity. I guess you could call it quote unquote toxic masculinity, although that's not yeah. what we talk about. When we talk about toxic masculinity, we generally talk about training that instinct out of men altogether, um, which is both impossible and, and I think well, not dull. Wise. But, yeah. um, you know, there's a positive protector part yeah. of that instinct and a negative sort of needlessly aggressive or, or um, conflict-seeking element of that male trait, right? I think there, with women, it's the same thing. There's a positive aspect of it, which is building relationships, building and maintaining relationships, um, and a negative aspect of it, which trends into, you know, passive aggressiveness or, or gossip, right? Um, mm-hmm. And I, I don't see any of these traits as inherently yeah. bad or good. It, it depends how they're shaped. And what, what really worries me, actually, is that I think, actually, because we don't acknowledge that there are such things as male and female traits, even when there are exceptions, we don't focus much on channeling them positively, right? Mm-hmm. We don't focus, we don't, for example, with men, accept the fact that boys are more aggressive on average by far, um, and that they need a, a structure into wi- in which to exercise that aggression where they're taught, you know, not to exercise it inappropriately. Instead, we pretend, we you know, try to turn them into little girls or try to turn mm. both sexes into something that matches the idea of, of us being all the same. Um, and, and we don't, then I think we miss out on opportunities to possibly channel those traits. I think for women, it's the same thing. We encourage, you know, sort of, um, I would say not socially good uh, versions of these traits when we don't, you know, teach girls, for example, yes, you're going to want to be conflict averse. You're going to want to, you know, and that's, that's fine and good and appropriate. But if somebody is, is abusing that in you, I, and I'm not talking about like formal abuse, but I'm saying if somebody is constantly walking over you, um, mm-hmm. then, you know, you need to learn how to stand up for yourself in those situations rather than saying, I think it's much more stressful and unrealistic to tell uh, a woman who who is more feminine that she needs to always like be out front and argue with with everybody who like um, you know <laughs> she needs to always assert her preferences in all uh, cases, including on where to go to dinner. Um, I, I think hmm. that's really stressful for somebody who has a more feminine uh, personality type. 
but it, instead, if you say that's wonderful that you're feminine, um, you know, we need this in the world. You are like the glue that puts together families. You're the, you know, the mm-hmm. glue that binds friend groups together. Um, you are a critical part of, of the way that a good society will function. But you need to be aware that because you have those tendencies, you know, people can take advantage of them and you need to be on the alert for that. You need to make sure that there's some kind of reciprocity and that you're, mm-hmm. because you are agreeable, you're not completely being walked over by those who are not, who are less afraid of being disagreeable, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, and this is, and I, I'm not, a, I, I, um, I'm not super familiar with all of Jordan Peterson's work, but I, I do remember watching one video of his where he was talking about how he trains women to go into salary negotiation, right? In, in, um, and, mm-hmm. and that's very much what I'm talking about, right? If you accept the underlying reality of who we are, we can try mm-hmm. to temper some of the, the worst impulses of both sexes. And of course, like, we're not ever going to be perfect. And we're not, I'm not like a utopian. There's, these things are always going to exist. Negative expression of these traits always going to exist. But I think more of it exists than needs to because we don't accept the underlying reality. Instead, we fight that underlying reality tooth and nail desperately mm-hmm. and um, culturally. And I don't think that produces good outcomes. And, and more relevantly, it doesn't produce happiness. I mean, female happiness was, has been declining in surveys since the 1970s, both absolutely and relative to men. So men's happiness has been going down. Women's happiness has been going down even steep, you know, even steeper trajectory since the 1970s. So something about the sexual revolution, something about the way in which you deny, we deny sex differences is not making for happy women and happy men. And I think you'd be hard pressed to find anybody on the left or the right who would, who is happy with the relations of the sexes today, right? Okay. Like yeah. we're unhappy. We have different reasons for why we might be unhappy. Um, but I, I think it's kind of hard to find somebody these days on anywhere on the political spectrum. That's like, yes, dating, dating culture today is perfect. Uh, it's, it's excellent. <laughs> Family formation is going really well. Everybody's really happy. Uh, I think you'd be really hard pressed to find that. Whereas if you go back to the 1970s, you do find that, that kind of, um, when women are sexually liberated, they will be, you know, happy. They will be able um, to to feel more empowered and and um, like they really did predict that it would make us powerful and happy. And and I think all sides of the political spectrum reject that now because it's obviously not the case. Mm-hmm. You, there's something pretty novel that you're pointing out where we are denigrating masculinity in boys and we're celebrating masculinity in women. So we're, we're trying to displace like the relationship of uh, you know, whatever that word empowerment means. It kind of ends up meaning, oh, being like a man because the man is the face of power. And I think that it's always much more complex to, it's much more complex. The female uh, skill set is not easily distilled into even a movie. You need, uh, you know, you need a novel or you need a series to really uh, show just how all those connections work and all that interactivity because it's so subtle. That's just my experience and trying to depict the feminine just on an artistic level. It's much easier to like just have that powerful man. You know? I don't know. I, I think there there have been a lot of films that I, I always think about Elizabeth Taylor, who's not even one of my favorite actresses. But mm. whenever I think about female power um, mm. in cinema, I think about Elizabeth Taylor Um and and I think there there are a lot of examples of that in, in and not at all I think the caricature that the left today would would have us believe right um, some of Loren Bacall's roles for example uh, these, these are strong women and and it always cracks me up because nobody thinks of their grandma as a doormat right um, <laughs> as far I as not. I can tell I've asked a lot of people and I very 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 few times uh, have I ever gotten the answer yeah my my grandma was oppressed or is a doormat, like my grandfather oppressed my grandma. Nobody mm-hmm. actually thinks like that because when the, when they're actually involved in these intimate relationships and they know, um, you know, they, they, they know what a, you know, actual relations between men and women look like, even though there was a, a societal structure overlaid on that, they don't think about it as oppressor and oppressed. I actually think this is, this is a bad framework generally, is certainly for you know, critical race theory and all the rest of mm-hmm. it. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's a particularly pernicious framework or lens to see male and female relationships through. I do not believe that women in 1759 were oppressed in the same way that black slaves were. Um, I think that the analogy is, is incorrect. What would be more correct would be to say that um, there were certain laws that prevented 
women from participating in certain parts of the public sphere, but that they had a lot of power in the private sphere. So, um, I mean, I, there, this, these things are more complicated than oppressor and oppressed. There are mm -hmm. different ways of exercising power. Men and women have exercised different kinds of power, um, even going back into what I think today we would consider the dark old times. And I'm not arguing that all of the laws that were in place then are were the correct laws or the correct policies, but I don't think that it's, I actually find it mildly insulting, the idea that women had no power before, you know, 1979. Um, women obviously did have and exercise power. It just looked different than men. And by the way, the obsession with exercising power is not the only way to look through at life either. Mm -hmm. So, but even within that power lens, I don't think that women were as powerless as, as the left makes them out to be, you know, prior to, let's say, second or third wave feminism. Um, but I, I also just don't think the lens of power, I mean, that is not a good way to view mm. marriages either. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think anybody, I don't think any marriage counselor has ever recommended that, um, you know, a man and a woman who are having problems in their marriage uh, talk about how power is distributed. Usually you're trying to get people to move away from thinking about things as being counting or a power struggle and, and towards a more, um, you know, a more uh, holistic view of yourselves as a unit rather than sort of looking at power imbalances within it. Yeah, so yeah. Um, I don't think that's a healthy way to talk about men and women at all. And I, yeah. I, I find it kind of insulting, even within talking about that, that, you know, that, that women of, of the past were somehow like disempowered or unhappy or pathetic. And I, I just don't think that's the case. I don't think that's a his you can make the historical case for that in any concrete way. Mm -hmm. One of the things that fomented the sexual revolution, so-called, is the dawn or the birth of contraception. And that promised freedom, freedom, but freedom from consequences. But the underlining uh, programming of men and women didn't – we aren't liberated from that. So although we are liberated from the baby – all the structures that you know, kind of uh, that that have crafted us of having babies, of having a family, and of uh, you know uh, accepting those burdens. We have all this skill is not being used because it's not being used. That might be leading to unhappiness. That I'm just taking a, a shot in the dark. One thing that I'm I'm trying to grasp for is like, what do you replace that? What do you replace this uh, current conception of liberation with? And it seems like there's this conservative phrase of the family. Um, I don't know if that's <clears throat> necessarily used nowadays, uh, but uh, I I don't even know if it if it's usable. But is that something that could be worked with? to uh, better understand the relationship between males and females. If we reintroduce this concept of family, kind of strip it from its political bumper sticker form and like kind of flesh that out, do you think that that would be a step towards understanding or at least painting the picture of how men and women are best suited in the world and with each other? Well, it certainly helps um, if you grow up in a family that models healthy behavior between men and women. Um, I yeah. think we, that is... Uh, <clears throat> sociologically undeniable, right? We have a pile of studies with like up to my head um, that show that, that children who grew up in married, uh, intact, two-person households um, with where both biological parents are present uh, have the best outcomes by far. Now, that doesn't mean everybody always, you know, brings out the exceptions in this, right? That's that's what always happens when you, you make a statement about uh, the, the natural family uh, being the best way to raise children or the best sociological outcomes for children, that doesn't mean that there aren't exceptions. And it doesn't mean that families don't do the best they can when that unit is not possible. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and life is a series of, of consequence, consequences and trade-offs. Right. So um, mm -hmm. it's, it's okay that not everybody and not every family achieves this ideal. I do think it's damaging uh, to, to destroy the ideal itself or to tear down yes. the ideal itself because it's not attainable for everybody um, and or, or is maybe even not desirable for everybody, depending on on. Um, I actually try to on purpose leave um, leave homosexuality out of the conversation about men and women, because so much of what I say has to do with the relationship exactly between the polarity of males and females and, and mm -hmm. homosexual relationships necessarily have to be different. Um, mm -hmm. in that regard, because you don't have, you might have polarity of, of um, personality, but you don't have that underlying, um, like, 
essential polarity there, uh, which doesn't make them any less, you know, uh, important or, or uh, valid or, or loving, right? Um, but I just don't think that uh, the framework is the same. I actually think it's, it's, it would be very interesting to hear somebody uh, lay out something like this, a framework for um, homosexual hmm. relationships, because they're they're just, I just, my only statement about that would be they have to be different, right? Because if you have uh, two men, it's going to look different um, than, and I don't mean in the crude sexual sense. I mean, like, it's going to look different in terms of personality and how those pieces fit together um, in, in a relationship. But so I just don't think anything I say has much application um, beyond the heterosexual family. Um, but I, I do think that it's important to keep that ideal. I, I, you know, as a conservative, I try not to slip too much into nostalgia, right? I think that's always the yes. danger for the right side you, of the You spectrum. said tradition once already, so. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, look, we have to evaluate what traditions, we have to evaluate tradition by some other standard, right? There has to be some other standard by which we evaluate tradition. Um, and I, here I, I part ways with some of like the more Burkean, right? I think you have to have um, some kind of thing outside a tradition by which to evaluate whether tradition is good or bad, right? Okay. Um, and I don't want to slip completely into nostalgia or pretend that, you know, there was a, a golden era in which everything um, was, was great between men and women and there were, there were no um, issues and, and uh, everybody was happy and there was a, what, what the white picket fence and all that stuff. And, and even if there were a time where men uh, and women got along better, I don't, you know, you can't rewind time, right? There's no way to go backwards. For example, you, you mentioned the pill, right? There's no way to uninvent the pill and there's no way to put that genie back in the bottle. Um, I think that would be, you know, completely foolish to try to pursue a strategy um, that, that tried to uh, go backwards truly in terms of like, uh, try to recreate the, the sexual scene of 1953 um, or, or of 1903 or of 1802, right? Um, I don't think that's desirable or wise, um, but I do think that returning some understanding of biological differences and reality of biological differences has to be a good um, because I just don't think <laughs> the further we get from that reality and the more we frantically insist that it's not true that men and women are different, the more I think people are frantically building lives that are not making them happy, that are not bringing them any kind of the fulfillment that was promised. Um, and, you know, I, I think we're going to end up with a lot of really unhappy people and we already are, but, um, I can speak to this because I'm, you know, getting up there uh, in, in female biological years and, and have to make these decisions myself soon. But, you know, we have an entire generation of, of uh, women and millennials that have delayed family, right? We've delayed having children. Um, mm -hmm. And this is such a sensitive issue to talk about. But how we've structured society and the way that we've structured our economic situation um, has been that you, if you want to get like a, a white collar job, then you need to go to uh, school until, you know, you get your bachelor's at 22, then you probably work for a year or two, um, breaking into a particular field, you might go back for a master's, um, you might move around a lot in p pursuing a career and not actually settle in any one place or city um, until you're in your, you know, mid to late uh, 20s, and then you start looking for a partner, right? Um, and, and so it's not, I actually don't particularly like the and cat lady sort of caricature or whatever, where like these women are just re rejecting relationships um, yeah. because they they are girl bossing their way, uh, <laughs> they're girl bossing their way to Beyonce or whatever it is. Um, I think a lot of these women do pursue relationships, but the the way that we have, well, one, the state of the dating scene uh, for both women and men, I'm not gonna lay the, the blame at all only on one sex or the other, but but also just the, the way we've set up economic expectations for anybody who's a success in this society are very masculine. Whereas a man can do that sequence, right? Start looking for a partner around 30 or 35, you marry somebody you know younger um, and have a family that's much, much more difficult for women. It happens, but it's much, much more difficult. It goes against what women, you know, generally like in men and vice versa um, yeah. to try to, to do that. And there's the hard biological stop where women can't have children into their, you know, in the vast majority of cases into their 40s or even 50s. I think there was one um, Hollywood case recently of, of a woman having a baby in her 50s. That's not common, right? Um, 
for most women, that won't be the reality. And what we see, if you look at surveys of millennial women, the vast majority of women still say they want kids, but they've we've structured um, sort of the the treadmill to success in such a way where you have a very narrow window somewhere between 28 and 35 to meet someone you like, date them for long enough to know whether you want to marry them, and sometimes um, too long, right? <laughs> um, and and then uh, you know have kids. You have a very narrow window in which to do that, and it just doesn't happen for a lot of women, right? Whereas if if we had a different structure of society that didn't so culturally emphasize that women have to be on par in terms of career achievement with men, I think a lot of women might have, you know, preferred, you know, having a a, a more nine to five job, um, you know, that allows them to stay in contact with friends and family that doesn't require them to, to bounce all over the country to chase the next rung on the ladder. Um, mm-hmm. and that allows them to, to date around and, and, um, to find somebody a much longer window of time, let's say 10 years instead of three or five years to find somebody, um, that they really like to, and, and, and have an opportunity to settle down and have a family with. I actually think that would probably result in more happy women than the current track we have, which is why I go back to, I do think there are, I don't want to roll back completely anything because I just think that's that's not possible. But yeah. I do think it's possible to have these conversations to reintroduce some some biological realities and differences between men and women and then talk about how we can work within the confines of the, those realities to produce more happiness and more human flourishing and more, you know, actually harmonious relations between the sexes. I think just on a image level, uh, what happened with my mother and father? They got married very young. My mom had me when she was 20. Yeah, when she was 20. And then they had four more kids. And my mom was the uh, homemaker. And she would do odd jobs to keep the you know the bills, uh, the roof over our heads, etc. But you know, over time, my dad uh, worked and worked and worked and worked and worked. And then he kind of stopped working. And as he stopped working in the in the public sphere, my mom got her master's degree and you know got her doctorate. And now she's a pretty powerful, uh, you know, sixty something year old, right? So I think that there might be an image of you know there is life after family. There is life in your 50s and 60s and 70s. If our economy stays stable, if our medical system uh, stays stable, we can generally expect a longer lifespan. And there is more to life later on in life. And I don't think like after 40 or the depiction of what happens after 40, is it all really fleshed out at all, where our culture is very obsessed with youth, of course, because it's very attractive, and, you know, that's what we want to watch, but uh, if if men and women both understood that there's life beyond that, you know, those, those first four decades, then we can, uh, you know, say that your career doesn't... And we can also work on making it easier to, let's say, onboard you know, middle-aged women into the workforce and, and, you know, tap into that particular, uh, power, uh, that, that is laying dormant. Yeah. I think, I think part of the reason, um, that these conversations have become so, uh, kind of predictable and acrimonious both has been (laughs) that we are juxtaposing this, this view of the housewife, um, from the 1950s, which actually comes from such a small period of time, right? If you go before the 1950s, and after, women have always worked, right? Um, because the running of a household was not just a matter of pressing a few buttons a couple hours a day, right? What really liberated women into leisure time in the 50s mm-hmm. was both incredible prosperity um, of, of a type that hadn't been seen on the globe ever before and advancement in technology that, that made running a household a matter of hours instead of a, a you know dusk to dawn sort of endeavor. Um, yeah. And and if you add to that the fact that actually communities were were more close knit than they are today, and you could just release your children into the wild um, <laughs> for for many hours a day, right? You would either send them to school, or you would send them on the weekends. You send them out to play with their friends. They come back for dinner. That created a lot of leisure time for women, and I think that's a huge part of why you see Betty Friedan. You see, um, you know, this this problem with with no name. I don't think human beings are, as a general rule, designed for endless leisure time. I think we 
as a rule become self-destructive. There are some there are some people who are not that way, like Thomas Jefferson, um, who spent all his leisure <laughs> time inventing new things and like <laughs> learning and and um, conducting science experiments and stuff. So there are rare people who use their leisure time productively. But I think for a lot of us, we we do need work to to find some kind of meaning and rhythm in our lives. And yeah. when we look back and say like, oh, you know, this is how women existed before the, the um, 1970s or before Betty Friedan, I think, uh, releases her book in 1963. That's not historically accurate. Like women have always worked. And to tie this to what you've said, um, there's no reason why this the sequence of work for women. And this is actually, I think, exactly the kind of conversation we need to have. It's practical. It's not nostalgic. It's it's you know, advice for young women and men in, yeah. in not, not in a coercive way, but in a way that makes it more likely that they think about these choices because right now we're not even thinking them as choices. They're not making, women aren't making a conscious choice to get into the rat race from age 20 to 32 um, and, and, and uh, juxtaposing that against family. They're just doing it because that's what success like in our society. And I think it would be much more healthy to have a discussion and say, look, you can get a master's at 45 like what your mom did, right? You you can't have children at 45. So if having children is part of what you yeah. want for your life, then yeah. it behooves you to make some decisions in your 20s that are different than say what a man might do and go straight through into school and go into um, uh, a high paying career right after either university or, or um, you might want you might want to emphasize, you might want to take a few years and have maybe not the, the most uh, high flying career, maybe become um, you know, become uh, somebody who, who watches other people's kids, for example. Um, you might want to do something interpersonal. You might want to work in the front of an office, something that doesn't take up all of your time, doesn't require yeah. you to bounce all over the world. It doesn't mean that you're stupid or unambitious or, um, you know, that you have nothing intellectual to add to the conversation. That's not what that means. It means that you're, you might want to prioritize these relationships and finding the kind of relationships that'll make you happy. Um, in, at a point in your life when you can still have children, I think these are exactly the kind of conversations, the practical yeah. and like and and in some ways sensitive conversations that we we need to have. And that's why I just I think we need to get off the girl boss train. I don't think the girl boss train is doing <laughs> anything good for society. It's insufferable and annoying as well. But that's you know aside. you have a tad bit of girl boss energy, just a tad. I don't mean to be offensive or anything, but I, I can tell that you you're rather high powered. So I've never been as ambitious as um, I think you know would hmm. be expected of me. Um, in, in, if if you define ambitious in that way. Um, you know, I have, I have a law degree, but I didn't go into firm life, right? I made a conscious choice that I didn't want to work 90 hours a week uh, mm -hmm. and have no time for friends, for family, for interpersonal relationships, right? I, I made that very conscious choice. Um, and I think that choice is really, really difficult to make in today's society where we tell bright young women, if you don't make this, like, if you're not on this, this treadmill, um, you know, Ellie there's something wrong with you, right? There's something yeah. wrong with you if you choose to get off of it. Yeah. I think, um, I, I know I, we said we're about over with our time. Um, uh, this might be a stupid uh, thought, but I'm trying to figure out what conservatism is or conserv. I can't even say it because I don't know how many syllables you guys put at the end of conservative. <laughs> Yeah. Conservatism. Okay, uh, and there was a there was an interesting clubhouse uh, chat room about what is conservatism, and uh, one person said that it doesn't really have a definition other than not being liberal or something. And what I'm kind of uh, gleaning from my conversations with uh, on this topic is that. Um, it's the nuancification of the rule and of the standard and of the norm of trying to figure out what that norm is, what that standard is. And whereas uh, a, a version of liberalism that I'm watching that I'm, uh, you know, immersed in is glorifying the exception It's trying to m rule by exception, trying to say that, <clears throat> nor <clears throat> pardon me, all norms are oppressive, uh, essentially, and they always leave somebody out. There's always some, there's always some othering that's happening. And I, I just want what you think about that, like the the not the glorification and the uh, calcification of the rule of the norm of the standard, but the understanding and the respecting of that. Um, is that fair to say what cons uh, the right is is trying to do, or if that is a part of the project of of this? Yeah, I mean, 
one of the most irritating, I think, discussion ticks of our age is to respond with exceptions to any generalized statement, right? Um, it happens all the time. It happens constantly. It's not a good mode of argument. And, and it's, it's also just, um, if we took it to its logical extreme, we could not speak about anything of interest at all. Right. When I say that men and women are different, I find that to be a really interesting thing to explore how we're different. Um, and you can't explore that topic if every five seconds somebody is saying, well, I'm a woman and I really enjoy coding. Right. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I just don't find that mode of discourse to be at all interesting. It's really frustrating. Um, and it, it introduces an element of emotionality into the discussion because usually the exception has something to do with you. Right. It's either you or somebody, you know, your friend, your family, like. Um, yeah. But if we talked about anything else this way, we would never be able to make any kind of generalizations and therefore we would never be able to, to um, observe any kind of patterns in society, which is, I mean, mm -hmm. our brains are basically pattern recognition machines. And to yeah. tell, tell us that we can't recognize patterns overall because there's an exception here or there that might be emotionally fraught is ridiculous. So that's, you know, sort of a mode of debate aside. Okay. Yeah. Um, in terms of what conservatism is, I think in America, and this is now controversial um, within the right, I think, but I think I think in America it has to be conserving some something about our founding or 1776. Um, I don't think conservatism okay. has meaning. And this is where, I, again, I part with sort of Kirk and Burke. Um, I think Kirk more than Burke, if anything. But um, I don't think that American conservatism can have meaning without reference to the founding. We are an intentionally founded country. Um, and, and we have to think about what level of generality and what um, abstract level we'd like to preserve from that founding. Because otherwise, I think we're totally um, unmoored and we don't have much in common, right? I think this is actually a huge part of why our discourse is so bad now and why we are at so, each other's throats so badly. Um, it's because the left for arguably around 50 years, maybe a little longer, has taken direct aim in a way that they had previously taken oblique aim at the founding, right? So if, if you look at Woodrow Wilson, for example, he, his, his um, reforms, his progressive era reforms were very um, sort of anti-constitutional, right? And you read his, his actual academic work, he, he describes U.S. Constitution as clunky, outdated, unable to cope with the governing challenges of the modern world. But when he went, when he ran for president, you know, he ha he still had to do that lip service, right? He had to frame everything. FDR the same way, right? He talks about a second Bill of Rights. He's talking about um, within the confines, even though the, the New Deal and some of the um, laws that were consequently passed to deal with the Great Depression did fundamentally transform, and, and in, in, I think, a negative way, the U.S. Constitution, they still had to reference that canon, Right. It was it was necessary for any American politician and frankly, anybody who wanted to really be sort of taken seriously in American popular discourse uh, to reference the good about our founding. Not that it's perfect and not to like downplay um, the, the major sins in the founding, but like to, to reference the abstract idea is something that we should continually strive towards a more perfect union. Right. Um, mm -hmm. I think for the last 50 years, we've had a, a increasingly powerful part of the left that overtly denies that, right? That says there was nothing ever anything good and worth preserving about 1776. Um, and that's the most obvious case, of course, would be 1619 Project and Cohan um, mm -hmm. and Jones. But I, I think that's much more of a capstone on a project that's been going on for decades in academia. And the problem mm -hmm. is when we don't have, even at that abstract level, that kind of agreement of the broad, um, a broad percentage of society on mm -hmm the abstract principles of 1776 on equality and liberty being two important, um, you know, weights of American politics. Um, mm. If we don't have that focus anymore uh, and, and we attack that, it's not clear to me what else Americans have in common, right? We're not France. We don't have a, we have certain elements in common culturally. Um, we haven't, there is such thing as an American culture, but it's not nearly as strong or unified as, as French culture, we also well, they, don't they've have condensed that theirs into a sauce over over yeah. Uh, yeah. ages. Yeah, yeah, like um, we're much more fractured. Uh, we're bigger geographically. We don't have that core ethnic group that France has, which is basically a tribe where they've added some people around the edges and drew some borders, which is is mostly the story of almost every country other than the United States, where we have an intentional founding 
and mm-hmm. a multi-ethnic one from the beginning. And here I'm not just referring to enslaved Africans who are brought here, uh, but but to Jews uh, who were here to uh, different groups that we now call white, but then saw themselves as very different nations of people, right? The Irish, mm-hmm. Scots-Irish, Brits, and Germans all saw themselves as very different nations. This doesn't have, the United States has never had a real like tribal identity. And we've always had to find a way to, to make to seem together different types of people. And it seems to me that the glue, when the, that glue falls apart, as it did before the Civil War in the decades prior to the Civil War, exactly over the issue of slavery, where you have the South moving from a sort of eventual abolition position for the most part in the early uh, 19, 1790s and during the founding era, as you get into the 1830s and 40s, you get more actual defense of slavery and saying, well, what Thomas Jefferson wrote is wrong, right? Um, we aren't born equal. We're very clearly born unequal, and that's why slavery is good and right. Um, mm, the nation couldn't mm-hmm. survive that. Yeah. So it tore itself in two um, over that question. And I, I see it in a similar way. We're kind of tearing ourselves up now uh, because if we don't have 1776 in common, I don't know what else binds us together as American citizens as opposed to other countries in the globe. Yeah, I, I guess all we have is the a military infrastructure, uh, which isn't going to sustain itself, and uh, which is, you know, we have to keep that in check with some, some sort of civilian order, and then we have the economy. It, but those two things don't make a nation. Those two things don't make a nation. Because um, that. within that, all there is is power games to control those two things, and that, you know, leads necessarily to dissolution. Well, I know there's so much more to talk about, but I know you have so many more other meetings uh, to go to. Thank you for your time. Um, I do you have uh, I want one more question, but I don't know exactly like where to go from there. Other than we need to somehow have an origin story, um, and then also there's a, a story about the male and female that that we've lost that we need to regain. Um, so, uh, do you have any parting wisdoms for a Monday morning? I guess Monday afternoon. <laughs> um. Well, I definitely, I think actually the parting, the parting thing that ter- uh, ties these things together, I would say is that we have to not be afraid to speak about truth and reality um, as we see it. And that is very, to me, that's the most pernicious aspect of our discourse today is that it, um, as opposed to the most annoying, which is the example that the, what is it, like individual anecdotes in response to generalized statements. Um yeah. But, but I think the most pernicious thing is we are becoming a people who is averting our eyes from reality, right? And I think we see that in the trans issue and especially women's sports issue because it's just so, so obvious, right? Um, when you see a biological man run against biological women, you see the difference. It's right there in front of your face. And the fact that – so I, I don't care about that issue because I particularly care about, you know, what – 0.1 or 0.5% of the population ends up doing. Um, I care because their demand on me is that I recognize something that is very obviously untrue. I think mm. that is really pernicious. And I think it's pernicious with regard to, to the more subtle truths about men and women that we've been talking about today. I think it's, it's pernicious with regard to our conversation, um, you know, about, about oppression and other forms and, and whether racism is, is the, the animating factor um, of, of American life today, I think the ability to say these things um, and and to speak the truth as we see it is it, it, that's to me that's why I'm actually even though I'm a conservative I'm all about building any kind of coalition that will bring back that that kind of um, freedom to really speak the truth without being self censoring without being afraid to say things because they might be controversial. Um, I don't see any way forward other than that. And it seems to me that there is one piece of the left, not by any means the whole left, uh, but the woke left that is determined to shut down those conversations. And I'm willing to coalition partner with anybody, yeah. um, whether that's you know the, the so-called dirtbag left that critiques wokeness from the Marxist perspective, right? <laughs> uh, and says, no, 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 class is really the most important way in which we divide ourselves. Um, yeah. Or whether that's the liberal left, um, which I imagine you probably count yourself a little bit as part of, uh, that is is just trying to preserve um, classical liberal norms and might have you know progressive views on healthcare yeah. or you know whatever. I'm else. rather compass fluid. Well, that's how I yeah. identify. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Um, or that's the traditional conservative groups, or that's, um, you know, the, the voters that Donald Trump brought in, which are mostly working class voters who have mm-hmm. uh, more big government ideas about, um, you know, for example, trade or, or, um, or, or uh, globalism. I don't care uh, largely as nearly as much as I used to about a lot of those issues, even though I still hold conservative policy opinions on nearly all of them. Um, it seems to me that we won't be able to argue about these things if we continue on the track that we're on right now. Um, mm-hmm. where 63% of Americans self-center their political opinions. If, if you have 63% of Americans not even being willing to, to share their political opinions, you have an ersatz democracy. You don't have a real democracy. Mm-hmm. A real liberal democracy depends on us being able to work out these political questions honestly um, and, and openly. Um, and, and we have to restore that or hmm. all the other disagreements we have will be for naught because uh, we won't really have a functioning democracy. Yeah. So before the Patriot Party, we need a truth party, and 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 maybe maybe the uh, the argument for uh, free speech is uh, needs to be replaced for an argument uh, for speakeasies where you can at least speak rather than um, just. The I think we definitely itself. have to build new infrastructure, and I mean this in the tech way and also in the social mm-hmm. way. Uh, we need to build new infrastructure around these conversations. I think it's really exciting that they are happening, like this conversation we're having on YouTube, but um, you know, there, there's obviously the, the podcasting world and um, Clubhouse and all these other ways, but I think we need to make it more concrete. We need to actually meet each other in person. We mm-hmm. need to have these conversations. We need to provide a social safety net for people who feel that if they do say something that is out of line with a constantly moving orthodoxy, that they're going to lose their jobs, they're going to, they're going to be shunned by all their friends, um, and they're not going to be able to put food on the table. We need to find a fan- financial solution for it, and we also need to find a social solution for it so that we can, once again, exchange honest opinions, because we're not going anywhere unless people are being honest about what they think. Like we are, Our discourse and our democracy is not going anywhere yeah. unless people actually are, are feel free to say what they think. And, and that's the reality and truth has to be the starting point for anything that we build. Congratulations for reaching the end of the discussion. If you enjoyed it, do be sure to leave a review or a comment or a thumbs up or whatever you need to do to show that glorious algorithm that this is some good stuff. And do be sure to go and check that back catalog as it is brimming full of fantastic conversations. Links to provide monetary support are down there in the description as well. Have a good night.